Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I ask that you would uh, use me in the opening of your word now to bring glory to you and to edify your people. Lord, we are earthen vessels holding the precious treasure of your gospel, your grace, your glory. May they shine through the cracks in our lives as we are broken, as we are broken bread and poured out wine, Lord. Use us and be glorified in these next minutes, Father. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, a few weeks ago, my, my daughter Natalie and, and her family uh, were with us. And uh, Natalie leaned over to me and uh, she said, Daddy, there are a lot of kids in this church now. And I leaned back to Natalie and I said, just wait a few months. <laughs> and I'm, I haven't done a head count recently, but I, I think the kids almost outnumber the adults, or will soon, anyway, if we, if we keep going at, uh, at this rate. Amen. Amen, Schultz and Contreras families and, <laughs> and others as well. <laughs> There have just been too many life-changing events uh, for people in our little church for me not to think that God is doing something big with us. There have been many births. There have been too many deaths. We've had marriages, serious illnesses, and serious accidents. We are, God willing, near the end of a pandemic and having new doors of ministry opportunity open to us. And perhaps I'm superimposing my own desire here, but it seems to me that more of us than ever before are desirous of being taken up into the air with the Lord to return approximately seven years later with him as he... Uh, defeats uh, sin and evil, the devil, to be citizens of the millennial kingdom and to be ushered into the eternal state. There was a time in my life when I really wanted this as an escape uh, from my problems, but it's, it's not that way now. I, I, I simply desire for his name to be honored and glorified, acknowledge worship throughout the earth. Uh, I, I desire that he would reign in righteousness. That's my desire now. And I, 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 I just sense as many of yours as never before. I desire to see his glory face to face. That he would bring about that time when the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Habakkuk 2.14 Well, it's with this conviction in mind that is that God's doing something big at Grace Bible Church that I'd like for us to briefly look at the second and third petitions of the so-called uh, Lord's Prayer, we more properly called the Disciples' Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in verses 5 through 15 of Matthew chapter 6, that section of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives good teaching on prayer, how not to pray, how to pray, and what to pray. When Jesus taught these principles on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, first, don't make a righteous show of your prayer. And then he went even deeper into a heart concept about that prayer in, in Luke chapter 18 when, when Jesus told the, the parable of, of these two men that went up to the temple to pray. One was a, a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And, and, and the Pharisee stood up in, in the temple and he said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Uh, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unrighteousness. I'm uh, unrighteous. I, I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all I have. But the tax collector stood far off and he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified and not the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So not to make a righteous show of prayer. And then he said, don't make meaningless repetitions and use many words. And then he taught them to pray. <laughs> the prayer that's been uttered more than any other and more often than not in a rote and rather meaningless way. find that interesting. We would do well to study and therefore pray this prayer that Jesus taught with meaning and understanding. And again, today we're, we're, we're going to look at verse 10. Now, after acknowledging God as the Father of all who are rightly related to Him, Jesus tells us the very first petition we should make, and that is his, that His name would be honored as holy. And then, our verse, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The request is made for God's kingdom to come. 
we often pray, thy will be done, or, excuse me, thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. We might, with equal faithfulness to the text, say, may your kingdom come, that request, that petition. It's interesting to me that Jesus said that his disciples were to pray this, but the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus sounds different. Instead of asking for his kingdom to come, the message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, is at hand. Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17. What did Jesus mean and what did John mean when they said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand? They meant that the king was at hand. He who was the heir to David's throne, who was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, was in their midst. Repentance was necessary, and as Jim taught us a couple of weeks ago, this did not come from turning from their sins. These Jews to whom John and Jesus were talking must change their mind about having a free ticket into the kingdom just by virtue of their nationality and their ethnicity. They needed to think and understand that being saved from their sins was not through a system of animal sacrifice. It meant understanding, for instance, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, that he was speaking of the one who was coming to bear their sins. It was by trusting in the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is a sense in which the kingdom was present or at hand because the king was present. So when Jesus instructed his disciples, including us, to pray, your kingdom come, he must have meant something else. From the disciples' perspective, praying for God's kingdom to come meant in their growing awareness to pray that Jesus would be inaugurated as the one who would sit on the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It meant the ushering in of a new kingdom even more magnificent than in Solomon's day. It meant that time when all nations would come to Jerusalem and there would be no more Roman or any other kind of oppressors because King Jesus will be on the throne. From the perspective of the 21st century Christian, it means that we pray for the return of Christ to defeat evil, to restore the earth, to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. In another sense, to pray your kingdom come means Jesus reign in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told in, in Romans 5:17, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the through one, much more, much more, I love chapter five, 
in Romans. It's a chapter of much more. Much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So this petition, may your kingdom come, is saturated with at least three meanings. One, the seating of King Jesus on David's throne in Jerusalem and the binding of Satan for a thousand years, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Two, the coming eternal state after Satan, the wicked, Hades, and death itself are cast into the lake of fire, and we have new heaven and a new earth, the eternal state forever. And three, in the life of believer, of the believer, we say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Be manifested in my life. Reign supreme in my heart. Now, I'd like to address as a sidebar... Uh, a teaching known as amillennialism. It's a teaching that says that there will be no literal thousand-year reign of Christ, that Revelation 20 is simply symbolic of a very long time, and that we are now in that spiritual millennium, and that Jesus Christ is now reigning on David's throne in heaven. The next prophetic event, according to to our amillennial brethren, is the return of Christ and the eternal state, new heaven and new earth. I find a a number of problems with this teaching, but I just want to give uh, two or three to you. The first is this. If we are now in the only millennium there will ever be, what does that do? to the promises of God to Israel. Now, I have a bunch of examples here, but I'm not going to give those to you now. Go to Guy's class in uh, Zechariah, and uh, if nothing else, you'll get the ones in Zechariah. But I would say to you, read, look at the Abrahamic covenant. Look at Genesis. And, and look at the, the, I'll just say, the major prophets. And read them with the idea does this sound like a promise of God to Israel? Does it sound like a promise of God to Israel? And then you have to ask the question, if it is not really a promise of God to Israel, if it is really a promise to Israel's replacement, or as some of the amillennialists would say, the continuation of Israel, if it is really to the church, did Abraham think it was to him? Did Isaiah, did Zechariah, did they think that those promises were to Israel? And if they did, do you think that God's promises of Romans 8 are to you? How do you know? Those promises to Israel will be fulfilled, literally. Second, I suggest that a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting the scriptures that interprets all fulfilled prophecy literally and nearly all as yet unfulfilled prophecy non-literally 
is a faulty hermeneutic. And third, I just want to quote from Romans 11, 28 and 29. From a standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans 11, 28 and 29. Okay, end of sidebar. Okay, we'll continue now. The third petition. Now, we are to pray for God's kingdom to come, and when that kingdom comes, the next petition will be fulfilled with it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Won't that be the day? Won't that be the day? When his kingdom comes, that there is no doubt that his will will be done here, just as it is in heaven. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We read in Psalm 103, verse 19. The certainty of his will being done in the coming kingdom is iron-clad. For now, as beacons of gospel light in this dark, dark, dying world, we can show the world how God's will can be done here and now. How? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Just because he was rejected as king at his first coming does not mean that he is not king. He is. Amen. He is the as yet uncrowned king in his kingdom. To the degree that he is on the throne of my life, I can say, your will be done. Elizabeth Elliot said in one of her, you know, what a great saint. But she had so many difficult sayings. I mean, she just did. Elizabeth Elliot said this, to pray, thy will be done, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. Very often, for us as God's children to say and really mean your will be done requires us to be broken. Requires us to be broken. I want you to think of the great company of Christians who were broken by God and said your will be done. Johnny Erickson Tata, who most of you are aware of of her ministry, experienced a broken neck at the age of 17 and has lived the rest of her 71 years in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic and now as a cancer survivor. Though Johnny was already a, a Christian at the time of her accident, God took her through the deep waters of affliction, pain, 
and wondering, why me, God? When she was able to say, your will be done, she could be used by God. And to date, she has written over 40 books, recorded several music albums, starred in an autobiographical movie of her life, and is an advocate for people with disabilities through her Christian ministry, Johnny and Friends. Charles Colson experienced a different kind of brokenness, which brought him to faith in Christ and to a point where he said, God, your will be done. He was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon and went to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He said, I would run over my grandmother to see Nixon reelected. He said some other things, not suitable for repetition before Christ. Before Colson went to prison, he trusted Christ as his savior. While he was in prison, he was able to say, your will be done. After being released from prison, Colson founded uh, Prison Fellowship Ministries, a ministry designed to bring prisoners to faith in Jesus Christ and to disciple them. Hector Avila was a teen from Mexico who was broken and learned to say, your will be done. Hector's family moved from Mexico to Minnesota when he was 14. Sadly, a few years later, Hector got in with the wrong crowd and began dealing drugs. He was caught, arrested, sentenced to prison for 10 years, after which he would be deported back to Mexico. The thought of such a long sentence to be separated from his family afterwards was too much for him to bear, and he hanged himself. He was found by an employee of the prison, however, just in time, and was cut down. Hector was sent to a new program of the Minnesota Department of Corrections, Prison Fellowship Ministries. There, Hector placed his faith in Jesus Christ, but there was one more problem. This program that was new to the Minnesota Department of Corrections needed to demonstrate a low rate of recidivism, that is, getting, going back to prison. And to continue getting funded, there was, there was no way they could track Hector because he was being deported back to Mexico. So after he got saved, he was told, sorry, you can't be in this program any longer. So what did Hector do? He wrote a letter to Charles Colson. And surprisingly, he got a letter back from Charles Colson. And he said, I'm coming to your prison to speak. I want you to be there. So Colson shows up. And the first thing he said when he got up to speak was, is Hector Avila here? Hector. Yeah, he was there. He got to stay in the program. Hector is back in Mexico. 
heard Lyle speak about him a lot, got to meet him. We ministered together in Mexico a few weeks ago. I can't even tell you all the ministry Hector is involved in. He's involved in ministry or has been involved uh, in ministry to prisoners in Mexico and in evangelism to indigenous people groups. One broken man, Charles Colson, using his brokenness to say, God, your will be done in my life, and thus serving, serving many other broken people, of which Hector is one. How many broken people has Hector served in Mexico? I don't know. Lyle, do you know? We can't say, can we? God knows. God knows. It's important to be able to pray and mean, God, may your will be done in my life as your will is done in heaven. I shudder. <laughs> I shudder to think now what that really means. Throughout Pat's illness, sometimes I would say, your will be done. But to be honest, it's stuck in my throat. It just stuck in my throat. The truth is that it was not until last summer that I could say and pray that prayer and mean it. It, it was a, a supernatural act of our loving Father that both Pat and I could pray and mean, may your will be done. So some of you are here this morning. It was shared earlier in that precious, precious time. Some of you are, are here and you've gone through that brokenness and you're going through that brokenness right now, whether, uh, whether uh, through a, a, an illness or uh, uh, the death of a spouse, a, a parent, a sibling, a child. Uh, perhaps you've lost your job. Perhaps you, you went through a divorce or are going through a divorce, some other difficult situation. When Jesus taught us that prayer, he modeled that prayer. He modeled that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if it, may this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed that prayer three times. Now, I find that pretty encouraging because I sure prayed. I had to pray that a lot of times, and some of you do too, and some of you do too. I want us to leave us with this challenge. If you have been broken, don't waste your brokenness. Don't waste it. Meditate on that passage in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, Jesus in the garden. Meditate on that. Jesus was victorious. <clears throat> he prayed that prayer three times. He was victorious, gloriously victorious. Now, God may not use your brokenness the way he's used Johnny Erickson Tata's or Charles Colson's or, or Hector Avila's, but he will use it for his glory and for his people's good. Use your brokenness to comfort those in similar afflictions. 2 Corinthians 1, 
3 and 4. Use it to purify you from sin. Remember, it was, it was sin that caused your brokenness. Not that it was necessarily your personal sin, but at a minimum, it was Adam's sin that caused illness, broken relationships, as well in some cases as our personal sin. But also, it was sin, not his own, but ours, that sent Jesus on his mission to the cross. The fact that sin is the cause of brokenness can be a powerful motivator to hate sin. A few years ago, Jim and Lori gave me a Kindle book. Maybe you all have this book, Valley of Vision, Puritan Prayers and Devotions. And uh, Pat liked it so much she got a, a hard copy for herself. And as God took her deeper into that experience of brokenness, there was one particular of those prayers that she loved more than any other. I'm not going to give you the whole thing, it's too long, but I'm just going to give you some excerpts of that prayer. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. And moving ahead, plow deep in me, Great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide, until thou alone art seen in me, thy beauty golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness as autumn plenty. And then the last sentence in the prayer. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water. Brokenness can be a powerful, purifying motivator to hate sin. And then to use our brokenness to remove the fear of death. The ultimate brokenness is death, isn't it? But... For the believer, death means forever being freed from sin. No more sin for all eternity. I'd like for you just to briefly turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says... Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, which is, if you look at the sidebar there, since he died, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I can confidently say, God, your will be done because the worst that can happen to me is death. 
then I'm in your glory forever. Sin is gone forever. I recently heard a wonderful evangelist, an 84-year-old man, who said, I'm getting tired of having to confess my sins to God, of having to say, God, I'm sorry. Looking forward to the day when sin won't be there anymore. And I'm in your glory forever. Sin's gone forever. Because Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He put death to death. And there's no fear. No fear. We're going to go to our time around the Lord's table as we remember Jesus' death on the cross, his atoning work for us. I'm going to ask the men to come. And while they're doing that, if you'll just bow your heads, have a a time of of personal confession of, of sin together.